Hey, this is Samuel Husband. You're listening to the RUF Ole Miss podcast on October 24th, 2007. me as we get through this tonight. From Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we've had our reading. <clears throat> Eugene Peterson reminded me of a, a discussion that Flannery O'Connor had in one of her book of essays on her writing meth- uh, methodology. Some of you have probably taken some um, uh, Flannery O'Connor classes since you've been here. If you haven't, you ought to. But O'Connor was very often asked why it was that in almost all of her short stories, they contain these bizarre, sort of overdrawn characters um, that are just grotesque as you read through them, macabre in their characters. And in reply, she would say something like this. She said, well, because if you're trying to get a message across to people who are near blind, you kind of got to draw large, simple caricatures. It's part of me that wonders if O'Connor is not taking her cue from Revelation chapter 17 and 18 as we come in Revelation to the, the most dramatic of all the characters in the whole book, the great whore of Babylon. See, John himself is writing to a people who themselves are near blind, aren't they? That is, they have been easily taken in by this woman and by what she comes to bring. But she's a character, I want to suggest to you tonight, that's a very powerful embodiment. A powerful embodiment of something that throughout the history of the church has been a seductive presence to the people of God. An embodiment of the enemies of God, that one that we have to learn how to identify and understand if we can come to understand how we can defend against her. Okay? So without any further introduction, let's look at three things concerning the whore of Babylon. First of all, the identity of the whore. Secondly, we'll look at the character of the whore. And finally, we will consider the destiny of the whore of Babylon. First of all, her identity. Uh, Who is this woman? Well, again, like we've gotten used to doing every single week in this series, uh, look at the images. First of all, we see that she sits on a red beast who has ten horns. Uh, My suspicion, like many commentators is, is this is the same beast that came up out of the sea in the chapters that we read and studied last week. The beast who comes, that one as you remember, as the one who brings full frontal assault. It's not the subtle inside-out beast, but it's the beast that comes from the outside in to attack. And of course, finally, we get very clear as to who she is when we see her name. Her name is Babylon. Now look, the word Babylon actually has a long history in the Bible, but it starts very early on. Genesis with the Tower of Babel. Do you remember this experience? Uh, What happened there was, is that the people of God, after the times after the flood, were commanded to go and spread out throughout the whole earth, to fill the earth. But see, they didn't want to do that. What they did instead was they clumped in the center and they built a city. And that city was an expression to the rest of the world of their own pride. 
And God judges them for their pride and says, you've tried to take matters into your own hands rather than doing what I gave you to do. Now, years later in the Jewish history, a couple thousand years later, we find that the Babylonians themselves come in very vividly. And they themselves come and take over Israel and cruelly enslave the entire nation of Israel. So throughout the Bible, Babylon is always a symbol of pride and of arrogance. It's a symbol of self-sufficiency. It's a symbol of moral impurity, saying to God, I can do it myself and I can live for my own pleasures. Now, I think that it's quite clear (coughs) that by the time we get to John in the book of Revelation, John has someone much more specific in mind when he's thinking of Babylon. Namely, I think he's talking about the Roman Empire. Did you notice that description that we got in chapter 17 that Will just read? Of the seven hills that surround where the whore of Babylon is. Y'all, I think that's clearly a description of the seven ancient hills that surround Rome. That are still to this day known as the city of seven mountains. Right? And of course the kings that come up and rise up are visible expressions of their hostility to the people of God. It says that this beast was, is not, and is to come. Which I think John is simply saying, the beast had been persecuting before. We're in a very short period of time when he's not persecuting you. But eventually there's a king coming that's going to bring it on in full force. What that means is, is they're being persecuted. They were being persecuted. They've got a small break, but it's coming again. In other words, he's promising the same thing that he promised with the discussion of the beasts. That they will continue to come back. Okay, so here's the question then. What is all that intending to symbolize? What is the whore of Babylon? Can I answer it in one simple word? And most commentators agree with me on this one. Y'all, the whore of Babylon is something that the Bible calls worldliness. Worldliness. Because throughout the New Testament, you'll hear the writers saying and begging Christians not to be like the world. And the author that we have of the book of Revelation mentions it explicitly in one of his letters, namely 1 John. Listen to what this says. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here's his list, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Worldliness, John says. What he's saying is, is he's trying to give you, in many ways, a new way of thinking about your sin. I would almost guarantee that most of the people in this room, when we're confronted with the idea of sin, most of the time we think about individual acts of sin. Uh, The other day I lusted. Um, Last week I gossiped. I have this sin, I shouldn't have done that. But see, John is saying though, but if you take all of those influences, if you take all of these things together, it creates a complex. It it creates a whole network, almost a world view that itself is committed to opposing the things of God. 
That is, your sin is not just personal in its act, but it's a whole way of seeing things. And John says very simply, it's marked by three things. First of all, a pride, uh, uh, the desires of the flesh. First of all, he looks and says, these are things that you go to to fulfill your life. He looks secondly and says, the lust of the eyes. That lust isn't simply talking about um, sexual lust. It's just talking about the way in which you see the world around you and desire it for yourself. And then finally, most vividly, he talks about um, uh, the lust for possessions, which what I believe is what John is referring to primarily in this discussion. But do you see what he's getting at? He's saying that worldliness means getting what we want at the expense of all those around us. Did you catch that? Worldliness is this. Getting what we want at the expense of all those around us. David Wells, in a great book that he wrote years ago called God in the Wasteland, defines worldliness this way. Listen. He says, The world, then, is the way in which our collective life in society, and the culture that goes with it, is organized around the self in substitution for God. It is life characterized, listen to this, by self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, and self-promotion. With a corresponding distaste for the denial proper to union with Christ. Worldliness. Look, what the Bible is simply saying is, is that whenever you... The Bible is not saying there's something wrong with you having desires per se. What it's saying is, is when you take those desires and elevate them to must-haves, you've become worldly. You become worldly. And in so doing, you violate God's law and, this is very important, your own nature. Come to that in just a second. In other words, the Bible doesn't condemn the fact that you have desires, that you want things for yourself, that you want to accomplish things. What it looks and says is you're going to be a slave to anything that you give yourself to other than God. If sex becomes so overpowering for you, then you are a slave to your sexuality. If you live for money, then money is what controls your entire character. If you live for your career, then your career will dominate your personality. But the bottom line is, it's all centered on you. Worldliness, first of all, is the identity of the whore. Secondly, though, I want you to notice her character. What is she like? Well, let's look at the word. <clears throat> the word for prostitute in the original Greek language is the word porneia, from which we get the word uh, fornication on the one hand and pornography. Now, my question for you now is why does God choose through John? To describe worldliness through this rather yucky sexual imagery. <laughs> it is gross, to be honest with you. I'm not sure that any of us want to know exactly what's in that cup of the whores from verse 4. right? But clearly, the passage is not just talking about overt sexual sin. Something more than that, y'all. There's something much bigger at that. And I, and I can state it very simply. Throughout the Bible, God defines worldliness using the language of whoredom, of prostitution. And the question is why? Now follow this explanation because this is really the very kernel of the heart of this passage. And you're going to read it wrong if you don't understand this. 
The God of the Bible assumes that as a human being, you were created in His image. And that means that you were created to be connected to Him. What the Bible calls in union with Him, bonded to Him, uh, living a life of deep personal intimacy between you and God is literally formatted on your spiritual, social, psychological, emotional, intellectual DNA. You follow me? And God assumes throughout the Bible that you were created for that. So that whenever you go to other things to fulfill that ultimate need to be connected only to Him, you've done the exact same thing that a spouse does when he or she commits adultery. Did you catch that? You were created to be in relationship with God. So that if you bind yourselves in an eternal sense to anything else... God says you're not just someone who's, who's broken a rule. <laughs> you're not messed up. You have whored against me. You've left me. And God pictures himself as the ultimate jilted lover who has gone for his people, who has longed for his people in the most deeply of intimate ways, and yet instead we've gone and prostituted ourselves for a thousand different things. Think about this for a second. Because the Bible assumes in human sexuality, listen very carefully, we'll actually talk a whole lot more about this next spring when we talk about marriage and dating and sexuality in the spring. More on that. Let that be a commercial for next semester. (laughs) But the Bible assumes that when you have sex with someone, you're going to do it in accordance with God's design. And it is God's design, listen very carefully, for sexuality to be a way of telling the person with whom you're having sex that I'm going to be there. I'm going to be here for you. In other words, we say with our bodies, the Bible says, no matter what our intentions are, that I'm going to be there for forever. But see, a prostitute can't do that. Because a prostitute is saying, I'll join with you sexually, but I have no intention whatsoever of carrying through with what my body is saying. I wonder how many of you remember the opening scenes to um, the movie Vanilla Sky. Remember where Tom Cruise's character hops into a car with an old jilted lover played in the movie by Cameron Diaz. You remember this moment? And all of a sudden she begins to freak when she hears that Tom Cruise has found another lover. And she all of a sudden begins to scream and yell at him. And in the midst of her little speech to him, she looks and says, Look, when you have sex, your body makes promises whether you intend to make them or not. That's exactly what we believe in sexuality. In other words, neither of the two people who engage in that kind of promiscuity can follow through on the intentions that they're saying with their body. Listen to Eugene Peterson on this whole idea of of, uh, prostitution. He says, the terrible thing about the prostitute is not that she takes strangers to bed with her. That is the one arguably decent thing that she does. Bear with me. But that once getting them into bed... She uses her body to lie about her life. There is no joining of lives, only of genitals. 
the exploration and development of our unique human identity, of which sex is the physical means, is replaced instead by elaborate and deceiving fantasies. A fundamental impoverishment of person, isn't that amazing? An impoverishment of person is accomplished behind a seductive spell of perfumes, silks, and flatteries. And this is, he's speaking in female language, but gentlemen, you're capable of exactly the same thing. I hope you realize. Whoredom uses sex to lie about life. The truth of life is that love is a gift. And relationships are commitments. And sexuality is the sacrament of spirituality. But the whore's lie is that love is purchased. That relationships are deals. And that sexuality is nothing more than an appetite. Whoredom is the use of good to do evil. And the use of a good body to demean the person. The use of the means of realizing our identity to depersonalize our identity. The great wrong in whoredom is not sexual immorality, but spiritual sacrilege. Eugene Peterson from his little book, Reversed Thunder. Now you can see what John is saying. John is saying every time that you begin to flirt with worldliness, you are whoring. You've become a prostitute. Because you were made to be joined in intimacy with the God of the universe. But every time you join with something else and pledge your life to your career, to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, to your social status, to your physical beauty, to your family. Every time you pledge yourself to that Lord, the Bible looks and says that you've now given yourself to it. You have lived for yourself And because you've lived for yourself, you have lived a lie. It's a lie. You were never created to function that way. You were never created to be able to draw life out of those things first and foremost. God says, either you have me in the center and everything else in your life as a spoke to my center, or you don't have me at all. Because every time you join with whatever that thing is in the center, you commit adultery with it. Because it's lying to you. It's telling you that it has ultimate satisfaction. It's telling you that it can fulfill you. And it can't. It's prostitution. And you're lying just as much as a whore lies to her lover in bed with false sexuality. And honestly, we get the most vivid example of it in chapter 18. I didn't have space to print it. But you see that the Bible is not just talking about emotional prostitution. The Bible is actually talking about financial worldliness. And to be honest with you, if we really understood what this passage taught, it would terrify everybody in this room. Myself included. Because when you get to chapter 18 verse 11, the Bible is talking and John is talking about the great merchants of the world who got rich in Babylon. And in the last part of that list, not only were they selling money and fine linen and wool and spices, but finally it says human souls. In other words, these people had determined that they would do nothing. They would settle for nothing until they got what they wanted. And they would walk over anyone in order to get it. Financial worldliness. Listen, y'all, if you haven't come to realize... That you are at present on this campus, living in the midst of Babylon right now, you've entirely missed the point. 
Because in our country, in our state, in our city, the economic disparities between those who have a lot, like all of us, myself included in this room, and those who don't have in this world are widening. They're not narrowing. People are not being taken care of more with the passing of time. Things in our country, rather, are getting more and more unfair. And with every choice that you make, and with every choice that I make in college, to not stand up in our world and scream, that is unfair. You make yourself complicit with Babylon. And you participate in her whoredom. I wonder if there'll be any of you in this room. I wonder if there'll be any of us in this room that'll be able to look back after 10 years, having been gone from college for 10 years. Will you be proud of what you did? Or at least proud of how you at least tried to make the world a better place? How you at least made some measured attempt to rescue the economic sufferings from around you? Or will you just become a suit, a cog in the wheel, a cranking out some sort of godless life, a mild-mannered existence, so that you can give the little woman a nice place in the suburbs? Look, y'all, the whore of Babylon is among us, and we are complicit with her every time we look at the financially hurting around us and ignore them. We have a parade of suggestions that come up here week after week for you to begin, just begin, to involve yourself in the smallest of ways into the life of someone else besides you. And instead we walk on day in and day out on this campus with a self-absorption that would freak out most psychiatrists. And probably often does. That's the character of the whore. And so in order to avoid her, we need to look at the destiny of the whore. Thirdly and finally, we saw the identity of the whore as worldliness. The character of the whore is that she's like a prostitute. And thirdly, the destiny of the whore. Well, it should seem obvious what it is, doesn't it? There's a a New Testament professor, Dennis Johnson, up in Philadelphia, who says this. He says, today Babylon looks to John's readers like a confident and beautiful queen. A city teeming with energetic activity and overflowing with the good things of life. In reality, however, Babylon is even now a hag, a hollow husk, and the haunt of demons, defilement, and death. That inward reality will become outwardly visible at Babylon's fall when her mask is torn away. That's the destiny. But notice the means by which the mask will be taken away. I was absolutely fascinated at this when I read through it. Because in chapter 17, verse 16 and 17, take a look at it again on your sheets. It says very clearly that the destruction that eventually comes upon Babylon, did you see who causes it? It's the violence of the beast. The beast itself will bring down Babylon. But you look and say, but I thought the beast was who Babylon was riding upon. Yes, that's exactly right. Because throughout the Bible, what you'll find is, is that evil eats its own tail. That is, sin comes with its own judgment built right in. 
Oftentimes, one of the main judgments in the Bible for sin is more sin. In other words, these idolatries that we've raised up inside of our own hearts, since they were never designed to maintain our allegiances, they end up not being able to sustain our own hearts. And you know what they end up becoming? They end up becoming a curse to us. You've already noticed this. Look, just do this. Make the person that you're dating right now the most important thing in all of your life. Wrap up your confidence in them. Wrap up your emotional stability in them. Wrap up your hopes for the future in them. And then in about a couple months, come back and tell me what kind of shape that relationship is in. You know exactly what happens. You crumble that relationship and it ends up becoming a curse. The thing that you worship the most ends up cursing you. That's what the Bible is saying. The beast is the one who brings about the destruction of the whore of Babylon. But you see the irony in here at the end is that the beast is the one who ends up doing the will of God. Did you see that in verse 17? 17, 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose. Folks, that brings us to the point that a lot of people get very uncomfortable with and they read through chapter 18. Because in chapter 18, the followers of the Lamb rejoice at the downfall of Babylon. They're thrilled when they see Babylon fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, they scream. And to be honest with you, most people who object to that kind of language simply have not read the Bible. Y'all, the book of Psalms is full of God's people who are affirming that when God brings judgment on the earth, it will be a good thing. And again, we find ourselves as a culture so offended by that. But I just have a feeling that if we had seen the kind of violence that most of our world sees today in third world countries, we wouldn't be quite that uncomfortable with this language. Do you follow what I mean by that? We live such an easy lifestyle. We live such an easy existence here. But the truth of the matter is, if that luxury and ease was taken away, and we got to see our brothers and sisters carted off to jail, if we got to see our parents slaughtered at the hands of a godless state, we might not have all these refined cultural sensibilities towards this kind of judgment. So last question. What are the followers of the Lamb to do? What if tonight you're looking at yourself saying, okay, got it. (laughs) Don't want to do that. What do we do? It's a very simple exhortation that John gives to you. Did you catch it in chapter 18? Come out. Come out of her, my people, and never go back again. Because if you're caught up in it, you'll receive the same thing that she's got. And to be honest with you, this was the whole reason why I wanted to do this sermon on chapter 17 and 18. Because there really is only one lesson here, y'all. And it's so important for this campus and me in the midst of it. It's all coming down. Look around you, y'all. It's all coming down. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the structures that we've set up in this place. The kinds of pecking orders that exist in our social circles. The kinds of intellectual and spiritual and social snobbery that we inflict on people every single day without ever even thinking about it. 
The Bible says it's all coming down. All the lies, all the revelry, all of the gossip, all the backbiting, all of the self-absorption, every drunken night, every sleazy barroom trash talk, it's all coming down. For some of you who get little drops of it, you know who you are. You've already seen a little bit. You've gotten to take the, taste the, in, in a sense, the smell of the smoke. You've seen where all that stuff ends. And God's simple declaration to you is to come out. Now that doesn't mean that all of a sudden we retreat from all the areas of the world into our nice little safe Christian huddles and never do anything and stay in our Christian enclave. What it means is that we live life by a different life principle. We live our life by a different principle. Why? Because we've looked and we've seen that we have contributed just as much to the evil of the world. And if the truth be told, we deserve that judgment. But, this is the good news, to the followers of the Lamb, they have had their own participation in the prostitution of the earth laid upon the back of the Lamb, and He was slain for it. And God killed His own Son for it. Notice what it says, that He remembers not our iniquities, as He's certainly going to remember the iniquities of the whore. He, the Lamb, has borne the judgment that you deserve. And I would argue with you, I would plead with you, that it's that knowledge that gives me the ability to come out, to get out, to leave that kind of stuff behind. It may be that you have to pull yourself out of some of those institutions. It may be that you have to pull yourself out of some of those other influences that work on your life. But no matter what, the thing that defines me has got to change. And the Lamb stands slain before you tonight with an invitation to come out. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we see that we come out by coming to You. We come out of Babylon when we come before You broken. Some of us have already seen the scars. For many of us, we can identify very easily the hurts that we've already inflicted on ourselves. And Father, we're hurting on the inside. And we are complicit and the ugliness around us. Lord Jesus, would You forgive us and draw us unto Yourself. Show Yourself as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that bore on Your own shoulders our own filth, and having been judged for it, preach to us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would You invite us all For we ask for you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.